Sketches from Scripture presents Light in the Darkness, a teaching series from the stories of Genesis. Light in the Darkness is a teaching series by me, author and filmmaker Paul Andrew Skidmore. In this podcast, we'll be exploring the narrative structure and style of the book of Genesis as context for better understanding of Scripture. This will help us trust more in these scriptures by demystifying them, taking the stories from the perceived realm of mythology or spiritual mysticism or religious fairy tale and putting them on the ground where they belong. Real words written by real people about real events in real places, all pointing us to a very real God. I hope this podcast scatters your darkness and makes the great light abundant in your life. If you enjoy this podcast, please share it with others. In this episode, I reference some images. If you'd like to see those images, you can go to skidmore.substack.com, find the post for this particular episode, and the images will be in the body of that post. You can also share this episode by sharing that page with others. So I think lots of times we think of Genesis as, you know, some history and some things like that, uh, sort of ABCs, basics from a theology standpoint. But I think when you really dig into these stories, you'll see there's some very complex things happening here. And the more we study, the more we dig, uh, the deeper we can go uh, faith-wise and the more challenging these seemingly simple stories can really be. I think the fact that we learned a lot of them when we were very little, those of us that grew up in church, we learned them in vacation Bible school and in Sunday school. I think that has um, sort of fooled us into believing that they're children's stories, but you can see these are very complex stories about very complex people. And I hope that we're able to sort of unravel a little bit of that. Um, Many of you watching are believers. And so I hope this is is really... um, deepening your love for the scriptures that you already trust. Some of you watching may be skeptical about the veracity of the Bible, or you might even be um, part of a Christian community that doesn't hold the scripture in, in as high a regard. Oh, it was written by men, but it wasn't, wasn't inspired by God. I hope that as we look at this, maybe it'll cause you to ask some questions about some of the things that we're looking at, some of the power that is in this text and where that may come from. We'll do a little review, and uh, then we'll get on with what we're looking at tonight, because we're looking at Genesis chapter 28 through chapter 36, and that sounds like a huge swath of text, and it is, but we're going to go through it pretty quickly, and there's just a couple things that I want to sort of stop and think about. So review-wise, we've seen from the first sentence of Genesis, the first sentence of the Bible, God's word speaks light into existence and separates light from darkness. This opening idea is the repeated idea for the rest of Genesis in all kinds of different forms and really is the repeated idea for the rest of the Bible. All of our existence is wrapped up in the first sentence of Genesis. It's, It's really incredible. So Genesis 1 through 11 starts with the creation of the cosmos and drills down into, uh, drills down to a single person, Abram. Uh, and so that sort of telling us that the creator of heaven and earth can come down and have a personal relationship with a, a single person. And that gives great hope for, for us who often feel insignificant. We now feel that we are significant to our God and known by him. That's an important thing. We've talked about the concept of 
holiness, the word holy not really in the book of Genesis, but what we see is the concept of holiness on every page and every sentence, beginning with that first one, this idea of separating out the light from the darkness, and that the light is going to be made abundant, and that the light is good, and that the things that are darkness and chaos need to be scattered and pushed away. And we see that over and over again in every story. We see this uh, idea of the family of God beginning again right away, beginning with Adam and uh, Noah and Abraham, uh, Abram, Abraham and beyond. And that that recurring theme, if you want to draw it out a little bit, is remove yourself from the wicked world and be a blessing to me and all people. That is uh, a covenant God has made with Abraham, but also Abraham's children. And that would include, for those of us in the Christian faith, even though many of us are not Jewish by nationality, we're not children of Abraham genetically, possibly, uh, that does include us spiritually, that we're spiritually sons of Abraham. And so that covenant is also with us. So that covenant is with an individual, but that covenant is also with um, a community, a nation of people that we find ourselves uh, a part of. Genesis 14, we're introduced to Melchizedek, the priest king, and we use that as an opportunity to talk about Jesus, as many of the New Testament authors will do. Uh, just goes to show the whole Bible is about Jesus. When you go and you look at John chapter 1 and you compare it with Genesis chapter 1, you see the similarities there. John, the author of the Gospel of John, is trying to tell you, yeah, that, that Genesis 1, that's actually about Jesus. And uh, the Gospel of Matthew constantly is referring back to the Old Testament, saying, okay, you remember this from the Old Testament? Actually, that's about Jesus. And so the whole Bible is about Jesus, the person of Jesus. We saw Abram have his name changed to Abraham, and we saw how he acted and how people responded, and it prompted us to, to remember that our faith persuades others. And notice that that is a morally neutral phrase. Our faith or lack of it, our obedience or lack of it may persuade others that what we say we believe in doesn't have any merit. And um, on the flip side of that, when we are faithful and obedient, uh, God blesses that and causes the people around us to look and say, what a good God they must have. Uh, we looked at the story of, of Rebecca uh, and how she was selected to marry Isaac, and we see that, um, you know, it's a beautiful story, but it's not necessarily about us, right? The Bible's not about us, but it is for us. And in every story, there is some eternal principle of God that we can walk away with and use every day. There is some eternal principle about human nature, and we can take that away from the story and, and use that every day. And there's always something in there that we can obey. So the Bible's not about us, but it is for us. And so we're very thankful for that. And then we looked at Jacob and Esau most recently. And asked the question last night, are we children or are we heirs? Are we going to act like children that just want everything given to us immediately? Or are we going to act as heirs where we are constantly making decisions on behalf of our father and also our family? So uh, that's the review and that gets us to chapter 28. So we're at Genesis chapter 28. If you got a Bible, go ahead and open it up. I may read a few small sections, but we're mostly going to be taking sort of the 30,000 foot view as we just zip through this. So in chapter 28, uh, Jacob is uh, by himself and he ends up at uh, 
the the place where he he goes to sleep by himself and he has the dream with what we call Jacob's ladder right and it's probably more like a ramp if you think about any of the ancient buildings ancient temples and things that had ramps leading up to them you've probably seen artist renderings or maybe you've you've visited uh, some places like this so some kind of ramp ladder staircase something like that and angels were, were going up and down on it and it was reaching to the heavens and when uh, Jacob sees it he he uh, he's spoken to by the Lord and so um, the Lord reiterates that promise that covenant with Abraham so we see once again that covenant is reiterated and it and, and I've lost track now of how many times God has repeated this covenant we were keeping track of it up to at least 10 and you got to remember however many times it's been reiterated uh here in the text it may have been reiterated more than that that it just wasn't written down and this is over decades and now through generations this is a third generation now from Abraham to Isaac to now Jacob this covenant is constantly reiterated and uh Jacob says how fearsome this uh, is this place. This can be but the house of God. And that's what Beth-El means. Beth meaning house, El meaning God. Uh, and this is the gate of the heavens. And around verse 18, and Jacob rose early in the morning and took the stone he had put at his head and he set it as a pillar and poured oil over its top. And he called the name of that place Bethel. Uh, I have been enough to visit Bethel. It's a beautiful place. I don't have pictures to show you tonight, but maybe I can post those on my Facebook later. And it's, um, if you didn't know anything had happened there, it's just some mountaintop kind of in Israel, you know, but uh, because it was the place known as Bethel, there are ruins of some ancient uh, temple and altar sites that are up there. And there are plenty of rocks all around that have little little divots in them. And it's just a natural feature of, of any rock in any rocky place. And you can imagine the type of rock that he would have found that would have a little divot in it that he would lay under his head so that it would just support his neck while he slept. And... Um, what what a magnificent thing it is to stand in that place and to to see the big sky that is there that overlooks the surrounding area and just sort of imagine uh, what Jacob must have seen. And so I love the vivid storytelling of the dream here with the ladder and the angels um, going up and coming down. And of course, that's referred to later in the New Testament uh, where uh, Jesus essentially is in the place of this ladder. Uh, essentially, he is the way that uh, we get to God, to where God lives. So, uh, but we're staying in the Old Testament for now. So th this is where we begin. We begin Bethel, the house of God, Jacob having this really remarkable uh, experience. And again, it's it's this repeating of the promise. And this kind of calls back a little bit to Adam and Eve. Remember when God gives the command to Adam of which trees he can eat and not eat. And then all of a sudden Eve shows up and, and now she's eating from a tree and it's unclear. Has God restated this command to her? Uh, did she sort of hear it by default? Maybe she was still part of Adam at the time. Like it's sort of unclear if Eve ever heard the command, you know, to begin with, or if she was just, when she... Uh, says it to the serpent. It's clearly she's heard some version of the command, but did she hear that from Adam? It's unclear where she got her information from. Uh, this is also a callback to Adam. Uh, I'm sorry, Abraham and Isaac, where you see Abraham sort of repeating, uh, giving his faith to Isaac in the the very difficult story of chapter 22 of uh, Abraham being tested, asking to sacrifice Isaac. And so you see Abraham gifting the faith in God to Isaac. And so you have um, 
here another place where did Isaac tell Jacob about the covenant and uh, if for whatever reason God has taken it upon himself to have this really magnificent experience to tell Jacob about it himself. And so there's just sort of uh, this idea of sort of passing on the promise, passing on the covenant, passing on the faith that sometimes it comes from God. Sometimes it should come from spouses. It should come from fathers. And um, so we just see another reiteration of the covenant here. So let's move on to uh, the next chapter, chapter 29. Chapter 29, he is going to um, the area of Laban and he sees Rachel and he desires to marry her. We won't get into all the details of the story here. You can take time and read that on your own. And I would, I would love for you to do that. But what I want you to see here is, you know, he works and works for, for Rachel. And then there's the marriage and he wakes up and it's Leah, the older sister. And he has to work another seven years for Rachel. And so when he goes into the tent after the wedding and consummates the marriage, but then wakes up to find that it is Leah. Notice he's in darkness, and that's why he's unable to tell which sister it is. Notice that Jacob is deceived in his blindness, which is exactly what he had done to his own father. So this is sort of uh, this is sort of a story comeuppance, right? This is sort of Jacob getting what's coming to him. Very masterful storytelling that's happening here. Again, these are real people and these are real events that happen, but there is still a story that is being told to us. And there is storytelling, there's style to that story that is informing how we should understand some of the things that are happening in the story. So Jacob has this deception against his father and it doesn't go unpunished. Remember, God will say later, you know, uh, I'm, I'm slow to anger, but I don't let the guilty go unpunished. Jacob has this deception and it doesn't go unpunished. He is deceived in his blindness, the same as he deceived his father. And in even with even more narrative irony, his first two sons from Leah, not from Rachel, right? His first two sons are essentially named sight and sound. Okay. Reuben um, literally means see a son. <laughs> All right. And so it's that theme of sight returning to the story. Remember Abraham lifting up his eyes and seeing, and lifting up his eyes, and look, there was a ram, right? And so we have that theme of sight that was really heavily present in Genesis chapter 22 and continues to be carried on as Isaac loses his sight in his old age. And now Jacob has been deceived from his lack of sight. Now he has a son whose name is sight. Uh, this, of course, goes right back to the first sentence of Genesis, this idea of light, light and darkness, right? Then his second son is named Simeon, has heard right? is what Simeon means, has heard. So this is the idea of sound. And this is the idea of hearing and the word in the same way that uh, Isaac almost uh, perceived because of the sound in the same way that uh, Jacob was deceived because he was in the darkness with no sound in the same way that God's word is what created the light. We have these themes of, of hearing and the word. So these recurring themes all throughout Genesis of sight, light, uh, darkness, blindness, uh, hearing the word. Again, we can look at these stories individually and learn something from them, but we learn much more when we understand they are part of a much broader story that is being told. So you see the masterful, masterful, masterful storytelling that is happening here. And the sons continue. Uh, Jacob keeps 
having sons, right? And we're not going to go through all the sons and what order they're in and whose mother had them and all that stuff. We're not going to go through all that. You can read all that. But I just want to point out that the struggle continues. So Jacob is just full of struggle. From the womb, he's struggling in his mother's uh, womb with his brother. And uh, now we see just these struggles continuing. And because he is just sort of fraught with struggle himself, it seems to spread out to the rest of his family as his two wives struggle with each other and the midwives struggle, right? And so uh, it used to be like father, like son. Now it's like father, like family, right? So it's the the things that, um, that Jacob does, his family sort of adopts his character. In this case, his character flaw. Now, one interesting interesting thing to point out here is all these as all these sons are being born, we also have what we also have a daughter. So now we're we're moving on and we're into uh, chapter uh, thirty now, right? And so in, in verse around twenty one or so of chapter thirty, we have a daughter being born. Her name is Dinah. Now, why is this interesting? Well, as I've said before in previous uh, sessions. Because this is a patriarchal society, the lineage is extended through the males. We we often often aren't told when daughters are born. So that you see all these male names doesn't mean daughters aren't born. Of course, girls were born in the same proportions that they are born today. It, it just means that it's not recorded because what's recorded is the lineage, is the family history, and that is carried down through the males, much as it is today in many cultures. So it's very interesting now that Dinah has been noted here. Well, why is that? Well, we said before, when women show up in lineages, particularly in the Old Testament, it means they're going to be important to the story in some way. And we will see that before we finish out our evening tonight. So um, then we have uh, Joseph. Finally, Rachel has a child and she has Joseph. And she says, uh, God has taken away my shame. And she called his name, she called his name Joseph, Yosef which is to say, may the Lord add me another son. So here's uh, something very cool. In uh, Hebrew, Joseph is Yosef, right? And there's a very similar sounding word, Asaf, which uh, means taken away. So when she says, he has taken away my shame, it's a pun on that Asaf. See, a lot of the puns and the literary things, the alliteration, all the things that would make story points just jump out of the text, they're all lost when you translate it into English, unfortunately. And so I'm very thankful to Robert Alter that he's able to bring some of these things back to us. So taken away my shame, Asaf means taken away. And then she says, well, I'll call him Joseph because the Lord may add me another son. And so Yosef means add. So Yosef means add and Asaf means taken away. Both of these words are kind of the pun where we get the name Joseph. And isn't it interesting the story of Joseph that we're going to get into in the next week. What happens to Joseph? Well, he's taken away. And then what happens? Well, he's added back, right? Not to spoil the story for you, right? So uh, again, names are important in the Old Testament. They tell you a lot about what's going to happen story-wise. Okay, moving on. So next we have uh, Jacob is wanting to leave Laban. Like he's been there long enough. He's got his family now. He's gained lots of things, and he wants to get out of there. And so we have this bizarre story with the goats. And so basically what happens is um, Joseph makes a deal with Laban, and he says, um, let's see here, um, 
Uh, what shall I give you? And Jacob said, you need give me nothing if you will do this thing for me. Let me go back and herd your flocks and watch them. I shall pass through all your flocks today to remove from them every spotted and speckled animal and every dark colored sheep and the speckled and spotted among the goats. And that will be my wages. Then my honesty will bear witness for me in the days to come when you go over my wages. Whatever is not spotted and speckled among the goats and dark colored among the sheep shall be counted stolen by me. And Laban said, let it be just as you say. So some interesting story things are happening here. First of all, first of all, Laban is in Hebrew, it's Levan. Okay, the B is a kind of a V sound, which is also the word for white. All right, if you think about, uh, I think the 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 root is the same as like laving, like as washing something to make it white, right? So you have Laban. Laban means white. And so he's giving Laban all the white sheep. So he's giving Mr. White all the white sheep is what he's doing. Okay. Again, there's some story things happening here. And so then we get this bizarre story. This is where it gets bizarre is he is stripping bark that has speckles on it. And that's somehow making the goats speckled and all that. Okay. This was an actual practice of people at the time, they believe that you could sort of hold something up in front of animals as they made it, and that would have some sort of influence on, on, on how that would turn out. There are a lot of commentators that think Jacob is just using this as a foil. Remember, Jacob's a deceiver. He's deceiving everybody all the time about all kinds of things. And so they think this is just another deception by Jacob that he's using sort of their ancient magic. Uh, but really what he's doing is just practicing sound hereditary. I mean, it, even in his own lifetime, he could have observed that there's fewer white sheep, that that's probably a recessive trait and that the speckled and the dark sheep, it's probably more dominant traits. So it just makes sense that, you know, if he can get Laban to agree to this, Laban may think, well, that's, you know, I've got equal numbers of each. But if uh, Jacob is really making sure that the, the, the vigorous and darker animals are constantly the ones who are mating. There's going to be a lot more speckled and dark sheeps, uh, a lot more uh, speckled and dark goats for him to take with him. So um, it's a very perplexing passage. Don't spend too long thinking about it, but it seems clear kind of what's going on here is Jacob's practicing another deception. By the way, he's practicing another deception with a goat. The same thing he did to his father Isaac with the goat skin, uh, tricking his father Isaac into believing that he was his hairier brother Esau. Um, so finally they leave. So now we're getting into chapter, so I turn my digital pages here, chapter 31. And so finally they are getting ready to leave. And so right here in 31, we see the problem. And he heard the words of Laban's son saying, Jacob has taken everything of our fathers from what belonged to our father. So we see that Jacob's, he's gone off of quite a haul, not just his two daughters, but also a lot of his livestock. So uh, Jacob and all of them leave essentially at sunset in the middle of the night. And he, Jacob's unaware, but Rachel steals the family idols, uh, essentially the gods of Laban. They steal Laban's household gods, his gods. And Laban comes and seeks them out. He, uh, Jacob, not realizing that anyone has stolen them, says the person who's stolen them, you know, death will be the punishment, not realizing it's Rachel, his beloved wife. Rachel goes and sits uh, on top of them. And when Laban comes into her tent to look for them, she says, I, you know, I can't get up. I'm having my, my monthly woman's time. And so Laban doesn't cause her to get up. He, after not finding uh, the gods, uh, they kind of sort of patch things up and Laban gets out of there. Okay. I want you to think about this story, especially when you go back and read it sort of uh, moment by moment, bit by bit, not this crude summary that I just gave you. And I want you to kind of think of it like a reverse story 
of Adam and Eve. This is very interesting, okay? Because it's a reverse telling of the Garden of Eden story. So Rachel hides gods with a deception about her intimateness. Adam and Eve are found naked by God after a deception, after the servant deceives them. God casts out Adam and Eve and causes struggle in the work and in childbirth. Rachel uses her monthly struggle involved in childbearing. Jacob complains of the struggle of work that Laban has caused him to have after they voluntarily escape Laban's fields. Laban's fields are kind of the anti-Eden. Laban is kind of the anti-God. And in the end, Jacob worships the Lord. So, uh, whereas uh, in the beginning of the Garden of Eden story, it's Adam and God walking together. And what happens next with Jacob? Well, we're going to see as we keep going on into uh, chapter, the next chapter, which is, I'm going to throw my footnotes, chapter 32. Uh, as we get into chapter 32, we see Jacob done with Laban, now heading into uh, having to face his brother Esau. And he separates himself from his family until he is alone and he ends up wrestling with God, Jacob alone wrestling with God. So again, this whole story of leaving Laban and arriving here in chapter 32 is like the Garden of Eden story in reverse. It's very interesting to me. And remember that I said this, when you see things that are the same in scripture, especially in close proximity. So here you have the Garden of Eden story at the beginning of Genesis. And now here, about two-thirds of the way through Genesis, you've got sort of the reverse Garden of Eden story. Okay, when you have these things that are kind of the same, the, the, the thing you want to do is to kind of put them next to each other and see what's different. All right, what is different? Well, Adam walked with God. Jacob, he wrestles with God. You see the difference? Uh, Jacob, Adam's born into a perfect world. Jacob is born into a, a struggling, divided world. Uh, Adam, uh, Adam's world, perfect and unified. Jacob's world is divided in every way. And look at how struggle and division are the hallmarks of Jacob's story, right? So you've got the struggle, the two brothers in the womb. You've got the struggle between the two families, you know, the family of Abraham, the family of Laban. You've got the struggle between the two wives, Rachel and Leah. You've got the struggle between his two camps. Even here in chapter 32, he, he divides everybody up into two camps. You've got the struggle between Jacob and, and, and God here in this chapter 32. He sees God face to face. And at the end, you notice that God will um, strike him in the hip and that he will walk with a limp for the rest of his life. So you even have the leg puller having his leg pulled right? And now he is struggling between even, even amongst his two legs. He is now having struggle because one works and the other doesn't. So this constant struggle in Jacob's life. And uh, we're also going to see uh, coming up the struggle as his sons fight the world around them, uh, the struggle amongst his sons in the story of Joseph, the struggle between his two names. He's given the name here of Israel, and it'd be re reiterated later, and you have Israel and Jacob, and there's a struggle but even between Jacob's own names. And then you'll see, we'll see a little later before the evening is over, the struggle between Jacob and Reuben, his oldest son. So uh, let me just read just very quickly what's going on here in 32, because I think this is an, impor an important story. So um, let's look at... Um, 
starting in verse uh, around 23, um, or t- perhaps 22. And he rose on that night and took his two wives and his two slave girls and his 11 boys, and he crossed over the Jabbok ford. And he took them and brought them across the stream, and he brought across all that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the break of dawn. And he saw that he had not won out against him, and he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip socket was wrenched as he wrestled with him. And he said, let me go, for dawn is breaking. And he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, not Jacob, shall your name be hence be said, but Israel, for you have striven with God and men and won out. And Jacob asked and said, tell your name, pray. And he said, why should you ask my name? And there he blessed him. And Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, meaning I have seen God face to face and I came out alive. And the sun rose upon him as he passed Peniel and he was limping on his hip. Therefore, the children of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh, which is by the hip socket to this day, for he had touched Jacob's hip socket at the sinew of the thigh. So we see Jacob wrestling with what he realizes later is God. And uh, there's a struggle there. And now, once again, we have a name change. It's not just an addition to his name, but it's a complete name change from Jacob, the deceiver, the leg puller, heel grabber. Now he is Israel. He's, he's still wrestling, but it's a, it's a completely different context. Let's move on to um, the next chapter here and kind of look at the rest of the story, things that are going on. Chapter 33, okay, we have Jacob uh, meeting with Esau, and there's a lot of things that happen here, but uh, he very much fears meeting his brother, and uh, they are able to uh, at least be amicable from this point forward. And so we have a little bit of a reconciliation happening. It's not a full reconciliation, but at least... Jacob does not fear being totally murdered by him, but he's also not going to hang around. Chapter 34, and Dinah, Leah's daughter. Okay, here, here is the daughter, right? So we said before, when you see a daughter, she's going to be important in the story later on. Here a few chapters later. Now we have the story of Dinah. And what we see is that uh, Dinah meets a Hivite, a prince of the land. Remember the Hivites? They're descendants of Canaan, right? So we see Dinah and this young man wants to have her and ends up defiling her. And we would use the more aggressive term here, the assaulting term that he, he raped her. And because he defiled her and because he disrespected the family and caused this violence against the family, uh, Simeon and Levi, they're not really having any of it. Okay. Uh, Jacob doesn't really have any response really. Jacob just really doesn't seem to do much. But uh, Reuben and, I'm sorry, Simeon and Levi decide they will take it into their own hands. And they say that, again, through a deception, like father, like sons, uh, everyone has to be circumcised. As everyone is healing from their circumcision, they go in and kill everyone. And Jacob's only response at this point is this, He says, uh, you have stirred up trouble for me. This is around verse 30. Uh, You have stirred up trouble for me, making me stink among the land's inhabitants, among Canaanite and Perizzite, when I am a handful of men. 
If they gather against me and strike me, I shall be destroyed. I and my household. Jacob always in fear. Right? Jacob always running away, trying to trying to escape. And they said, like a whore, should our sister be treated? Right? So Simeon and Levi have some sound reasoning, though perhaps poor reaction to it, even though what they are trying to do is seek justice for their sister. Uh, Jacob has some fearful reasoning and just inaction that doesn't find justice for anyone. Nevertheless, they've created trouble with the people they live around. Again, this struggle, this strife happening in the story of Jacob. This idea that Simeon and Levi have gone against their father's wishes and caused the strife. We'll come back to that near the end of Genesis. It'll be important. Let's um, keep going. Chapter 35, almost there. See, I say we're going to get to chapter 36. We're already at chapter 35. And when we get to Genesis chapter 35, and God said to Jacob, rise, go up to Bethel and dwell there and make an altar there. We're returning to Bethel. So we started in chapter 28 in Bethel and we're back now at chapter 35 in Bethel. So again, lots of times when you see these things, they are bookends. When you see these similar stories, they are bookends for all the things that are happening in between. We've talked about chiastic structure. We've talked about comparing things that are alike. And so now here we have Jacob not alone at Bethel, but with his whole clan and all of his family. And what those bookends are telling you is this is the story of this part of Jacob's story. Jacob's not dead. Jacob will live and be part of the stories to continue, but it will become much more about the sons from this point forward. What we do have here, though, is we have uh, some th- some uh, what what we in the film business call shoe leather, right? So you've got them traveling from one place to another. You've got uh, who's dying. You've got some genealogies. Remember, we said genealogies are sort of act breaks, letting you know, okay, this part of the story is done. We're transitioning now into another part of the story. We have the repetition from God that his name should no longer be Jacob, but should be called Israel. You know, I said we would see some struggle in those names as we go from here forward. What you'll notice from this chapter forward is that Jacob and Israel are both, they both continue to be used. And we're going to note why the narrator or why God might use the word Israel versus the word Jacob, because they're both used from this point forward, particularly by the narrator of Genesis. And we'll see why is it? Why does he say Jacob sometimes and Israel sometimes? Is there some meaning to that? So we'll take note of that. And so once again, here we see this repetition of the blessing again, right? And um, he is, uh, verse 12, 13, and the land I gave to Abraham and to Isaac, uh, to you I will give it and to your seed. He's repeating that again. Again, I've lost count of how many times God has repeated this covenant with this family, but we're in our third generation. We're decades in of this repeating of the covenant. And honestly, so far, these guys, it seems like they need the constant reminders, right? And it's very easy for us to give them a lot of grief because we can read all of their mistakes compiled in a very short amount of time. But we have to remember ourselves too. I myself, this, you know, in this very weekend have been very difficult, have been very um, guilty of just forgetting the Lord's promises and forgetting the Lord's provision and forgetting how good God is and that he's going to take care of me in the things that I need. Uh, Just to finish out the text before we get into some more thoughts, Genesis chapter 36 is a genealogy of Esau, a genealogy of Edom, and all the people that will come from Edom because they some of them will play a part in the biblical story later. And it's important to know who's the descendants of Canaan or the Ammonites or the Moabites and who's the descendants of Edom. Okay, 
the theme here, the theme throughout this entire section that we've looked at, throughout the entire story of Jacob, is struggle. It's wrestling, striving. And the thing that we should look at, particularly with the story that, that, that I read a moment ago, where Jacob and God are wrestling together, God does not discourage the struggle. God does not say, if you are struggling, if you are, if you are struggling with your faith, if you are struggling in believing in me, if you are struggling in your faith with me, then get out of here. No, quite the contrary. When Jacob was alone, God sought him out and provoked the wrestling <laughs> because God would rather have you wrestling with him than leaving him, than neglecting him, than forgetting him, than abandoning him. God does not discourage the struggle. He comes into it. He comes and finds you. Now, it's interesting because the scripture says that his name is Israel, quote, because you have striven with God and men and won out. But what's interesting is that the name Israel, the Hebrew there, the way it's constructed as a word, suggests that it literally means God will prevail. So that Sarah, beginning, means struggle, but that El is God, and God appears to be the subject of this word. So which is it? Is it you've striven with God, or is it God will prevail? What's the meaning of this word Israel? Well, I submit that it's both, and that God is gracious with his framing as he speaks to Jacob. I mean, does Jacob win the wrestling match? I mean, he walks away with an eternal limp. So in some respects, you can say Jacob, Jacob didn't really win out, right? So how is it that he wins? God says that he wins, and God's always right. So how is it that he wins? He wins because he struggles with God, not against God. The God who will prevail. God will win, and we win when we struggle with him, not against him. When Jacob wrestles, it is not for God to get away. He will not let him go. And he says, please, I won't let you go until you bless me. Jacob is struggling to receive a blessing. Jacob is struggling to receive God. Jacob is struggling to hold on to the faith of his fathers, not to uh, eject it, but to embrace it. So which is it? Is it you've striven with God or is it God will prevail? The answer is yes. So that's what I want to leave you with tonight. In any fear you may have, in any struggle you may have, in any doubt you may have, in any wavering of your faith that you may have, are you struggling against God or are you struggling with God? Sketches from Scripture is a production of Parabolos, the production company of author and filmmaker Paul Andrew Skidmore. Subscribe to this podcast and more at skidmore.substack.com.